So last week, we began our trek <clears throat> through the gospel of Mark, and we pointed out that the gospel is good news. Yes, there's lots of noise out there in the world around us, but the coming of Jesus is good news, and it had a dramatic impact on the people who first received it. Isaiah and Malachi, they prophesied about its coming. John the Baptist pointed it out when Jesus arrived. The Holy Spirit and God himself affirmed Jesus' identity. And even Satan, the devil himself, tried to sabotage Jesus' coming. Why? Because Jesus' coming was good news. We also said that the good news requires a response. When we, when we hear the good news, we have two choices, right? Hear and obey or suffer our own way. Hear and obey or suffer our own way. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 1.15? He says, the time, the, the kairos has come. Repent and believe the good news. As we move from scene to scene throughout uh, Mark's gospel, the good news is being shared with hurting people. Uh, and we're going to see that it has the power to transform their lives. Demons are cast out. Sick people are made well. Lepers are healed. These miracles aren't the point of Jesus coming, but rather they add credibility to his message. Today we're going <clears throat> to see that while the gospel is good news, it can also be incredibly divisive. Where we landed last week was that oftentimes uh, what we see in some Christian circles is an attempt to help Jesus reach more people um, or, or, or attempts to broaden his appeal. But the approach to that is maybe softening what he said about sin, tweaking what he said about our identities, omitting what he said about himself, or just outright changing what he said about eternity. And I said last week, and I'll say it again this week, Jesus doesn't need our help with making the gospel more appealing. All right, from the very beginning, the good news has been divisive. We don't need to explain the gospel away. We need to hear and obey. Mark chapter 2 begins like this. It says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Now keep in mind, Capernaum is where things began back in chapter one. Capernaum is where the demon-possessed man showed up to church and Jesus cast the demon out of him. So the citizens of Capernaum, uh, they had not only heard about, about Jesus and about what he had done, they had experienced it firsthand, and the result was tons and tons and tons of people were flocking to Jesus to hear him preach because they understood that he taught as one who had authority. Verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. 
Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. The first thing I kind of want you to see in this, in this scene is Jesus looked down and he saw a broken man. All right, this, this shouldn't surprise us, not after what we witnessed in chapter 1. Of course, people are going to show up uh, while Jesus is teaching in the hopes that he would perform uh, another miraculous feat, right? Now, if we read the text carefully, what we notice in verse 1 is that Jesus had come home. Apparently, sometime uh, Jesus had moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and if that's accurate, then it's plausible, if not likely, that that Jesus was the proud owner of the, the home with a freshly gaping hole in the roof, okay? Now, it's worth pointing out as we go through the text that rather than rebuking these individuals for what they broke, their efforts are instead rewarded because getting broken people to Jesus is what matters the most. Now, I gotta just pause for one quick second so we can have a heart-to-heart. If you know me, um, you, you, you know this to be true. If, if you don't know me, maybe you know a staff member you can ask or you can ask somebody else. Um, but I, um, I like order and I like predictability. Okay, they, I don't know if those are, are, are a love language, but if it's possible that they are a love language, my love languages are order and predictability. You can ask my wife. Um, but let's be honest with each other. Life isn't always orderly or predictable, is it? Right? In fact, um, there are times when circumstances blurry, blurry, blur life and the circumstances that we face, right? Things, um, people don't, don't always come to Jesus in the nicely, neatly divided, organized ways that we intend them to, do they? Life doesn't operate that way. Meditating on this, on this passage, if you're anything like me, uh, what you'll find is um, it'll probably stretch you a little bit. Like if it were me and I were writing this or I had the you know, authority to kind of tell this story or watch it unfold the way I would prefer, you'd probably see these four guys with their buddy on the mat and they're waiting patiently in line, right? There's no, uh, no evidence. There's gonna be no opportunity to go do in any, you know, damage to anybody's property, all right? That's the last thing we're gonna see. But thankfully for us, it's not up to me, right? Because while we might not see anybody's roof getting damaged or any property getting destroyed, we might also miss out on a miracle, okay? My point is sometimes people are going to come to the real Jesus in unpredictable ways. And we should do everything that we can to spur them on rather than box them out. Verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Jesus applauds the faith of the four friends, but then he turns and he does something uh, rather unexpected. He forgives the paralyzed man's sins. Now, uh, this is strange for at least a few reasons. First, this guy, uh, he didn't show up looking for forgiveness, right? He, he showed up and he was, he was looking to be healed of his paralysis. 
So what gives? Well, it's really, really important that we keep in mind that in this Jewish culture, sin and suffering were linked. They were connected, right? There's a perfect example of this in John chapter 9. There, Jesus and his disciples passed by a man who had been born blind, according to the text. There, the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Common belief at the time was that if you were suffering, they must be because of some sin present in your life. And God was angry or disappointed or upset with you. In the Old Testament book of Job, um, Job's friends make exactly this point. Right when, when Job's cushy, blessed, wonderful, picturesque life goes up in flames... The case that that his friends make is, you must have done something to deserve this, Job. We don't know the circumstances that led to this man's paralysis. We don't know if he made uh, bad decisions as a boy. We don't know if he was careless at work and it was a product of an accident. We don't know if he was just simply born with this paralysis. But what we do know is Jesus cares. He saw the faith of of this guy's friends, and it it was obvious by the lengths that they were willing to go to place this man at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus extended forgiveness because he cares. It wasn't the, the faith of the four friends that resulted in his forgiveness. Jesus dealt with this man on an individual level, but it was their faith that got him to the feet of Jesus. Here's what I think we got to remember, we got to keep in mind. Guys, we can't save our friends, right? We, we can't make a rebellious child love Jesus. Your, friend, your, your faith can't soften the hard heart of, of, a, of a friend, but our faith can get these people to the feet of Jesus to do what only Jesus can do our persistence in prayer and our resolve in reflecting the real Jesus can have an impact far beyond what we could ever imagine. Jesus looked down and he saw a broken man and he offered him forgiveness. Then he looks up and around and he sees critics. This is where things begin to get complicated You see, forgiving sins would seem to be uh, out of an ordinary man's jurisdiction, all right? If this paralyzed man were seeking forgiveness, he would not have gone to some simple street preacher. He would have gone to the temple and he would have sought a priest. But Jesus had captured the attention of the crowds because he taught as one who had authority. And in so doing, he caught the eye of the religious leaders. He captured the attention of the crowds and then he caught the eye of the religious leaders. Now, we would expect that the religious leaders would come to investigate the ministry of Jesus, seeing as how they were uh, in charge with the religious health of the nation. Right? It was under their care. and Israel was under their care and so we would expect them to show up to investigate the claims of a, of a new teacher. What we find when they arrive on the scene, is they show up with, with closed minds 
and cold hearts. Verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This event, this healing of the guy who's been dropped through the roof, uh, is, is the beginning of the official opposition to Jesus' ministry that will ultimately lead to his death. This scouting party of religious officials came looking for trouble, and that is precisely what they found. To say that they were shocked would be the understatement of all understatements. You see, the penalty for blasphemy, according to Leviticus chapter 24, was death by stoning. You see, Jesus looked down, and he saw a broken man, and he offered him forgiveness. Then he looked up, and he looked around, and he saw critics And he challenged them. Verse 8. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. We need to understand uh, something is really important as we we continue to read through Mark chapter 2, and that's this. There would have been no way for us, for the crowd, or the religious leaders to know if Jesus were a fraud, if he was merely spouting noise or spreading good news, right? There would be no way for us to know. Any fool could show up and say, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus rhetorically asks, um, which is easier? And you know as well as I know that it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven and then walk away. But to, but to say get up and walk would be verifiable. Jesus' reliability could be proven or disproven on the spot. So again, for a culture whose default thinking was to believe that sin and suffering were connected, that they were linked, that they were joined at the hip, Jesus has revealed in the most dramatic way possible that he has dominion, that he has authority, that he has power over both. Jesus used a miracle to prove his message. Now, don't let the sensational cause you to miss the substance. Jesus has come not just to soothe our physical afflictions, but more importantly, to, to, to heal our spiritual condition. Jesus makes no bones about it. He's claiming to be God, not just by healing this man's body, but referring to himself as the son of man. This is a messianic title that Mark is going to use 14 times in a 16 chapter book. It's Everywhere, And what Mark is doing is he's sprinkling seeds throughout the book that will later blossom. Jesus had the authority to heal 
and forgive. The scribes and the Pharisees, they could do neither of these things. And as the man rises to his feet and picks up his mat, the crowd explodes. Like they, they, they explode in, in, in an astonishment and in awe because they'd again witnessed something that amazed them. Marcus quick to point out that this miraculous healing resulted in the crowd praising God. Put that in your brain. Think about that. Keep that in there. We're going to visit that in a second. He goes on to explain how God continued to draw people to Jesus. He describes how Levi, the hated tax collector, began to follow Jesus. And not just Levi, but lots of other sinners and tax collectors began to follow Jesus. Why? Because the gospel is good news and it's meant to be shared with others. It has the power to reshape and transform our lives no no matter how far we may have strayed. You know who's not amazed at Jesus' teaching? You know who's not impressed by his miraculous acts or growing fame? The people who no doubt had a front row seat to the paralyzed man's healing. Throughout the rest of the chapter, Mark is going to chronicle the religious leaders mounting contempt for Jesus. The Pharisees and scribes criticize Jesus about the company that he chooses to keep, the rituals he fails to observe, and his apparent disregard for God's word. Why does he defile himself by eating with tax collectors and sinners? Why doesn't Jesus fast like other deeply religious people? Why does he work on the Sabbath and ignore the laws of God? These, these religious leaders had a front row seat to Jesus' extraordinary authority, but they just couldn't fit him into their God box. You know what I mean? In their God box, there was no room for messy people. There was no room for joy. And there was no other way to interpret God's laws. Jesus simply did not fit into their worldview. Anytime we talk about the Pharisees or the religious folks, uh, I think it's, it's, it's really important for us, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time, to pay special attention because it wasn't the nasty sinners who had a problem with Jesus and it wasn't the nasty sinners who Jesus was continually correcting it was the church folks Jesus loved messy people and messy people seemed to love Jesus in verse 17 Jesus says it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. And you know, in saying this, you know what Jesus is doing? He's poking at the Pharisees and the religious leaders. You know how I know this? Because no one is righteous. This has been established for a long time. This was established back in David's day, in Psalm 14 and in Psalm 53. This is exactly what David said. No one is righteous, not even one. This is something that's later reaffirmed By the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, no one's righteous, not even one. The Pharisees, 
They should, have, they should have known this if they were as devout and as pious as they claimed to be. Yet they dismissed and they disregarded those earnestly seeking God. What Jesus is saying is, is if you think that you've got it all together, you'll never hear his call. If we think that we're just fine or that we've got it all figured out, we're going to end up just like the Pharisees on the outside looking in. Because Jesus didn't fit into their God box, the Pharisees couldn't see that Jesus' arrival wasn't a time like any other, that his arrival was cause for celebration. When he was questioned about fasting, Jesus compared himself to the bridegroom at a wedding, right? Can you imagine uh, going to a wedding reception and seeing this, all this, you know, beautiful, delicious food, this expensive food, you know, people cater in a, a wedding reception that you're going to spend lots and lots of money, right? Lots and lots of money on, on really expensive. Can you imagine everybody showing up to this wedding reception and folding their arms and just walking, you know, looking at the food? Absolutely not. It's the most silly thing in the whole world, you know? Little girls, you know, getting ready to, you know, thinking about their most, you know, important day of their whole life, right? They're not like, oh, I want all this food so that people can look at it. It would be absolutely ridiculous to have all this and choose not to eat. And Jesus' point is there'll be plenty of time for abstaining later, for not, for not eating later. This time is special. You know, the, the time has come. Jesus' presence was unique and his news was good, but the religious leaders, they just couldn't see it because they couldn't see past themselves. Jesus' lifestyle and teaching stretched the Pharisees and they didn't appreciate it. It, it warped their worldview and they couldn't accept it. Jesus explains the dynamic like this in verse 21. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the, the new wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. You see what Jesus is getting at? Jesus is, in a roundabout way, saying that the Pharisees and the religious leaders are like old, worn-out bags. And the powerful gospel that he'd brought, the, the good news, isn't going to fit into a container that refused to stretch. Dragging with me? The tax collectors and the sinners... They received Jesus eagerly because they were receptive and they were malleable. The good news of Jesus was only going to cause the Pharisees to burst at the seams. The Pharisees wanted a Messiah that leaped from their God box, who looked like them, stern and strict and, and scrupulous. They wanted someone who'd observe Moses' laws like the Sabbath meticulously and, and methodically. But Jesus showed up and he's like, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. And here's, here's what I want, want you to see this morning. Here's what I want you to, to wrap your arms around. The gospel is good news. But it's, but it's also incredibly divisive. Some, like the Pharisees, will hear it, fail to obey, and suffer their own way. Jesus invites us to follow him, but he also challenges us to leave behind the things that don't belong in a God box. We need to to come to grips with the fact that over the years, we've all put stuff in our little God box that doesn't belong. And it's gonna make it a whole lot harder to follow Jesus with those things in our God box. Now here, I don't, don't beat yourself up. You know, don't, don't, don't get down in the mouth or, or woe is me. Like, we've all done this. We've all got our little boxes and there are things in our God box that should not be there. The incredible thing is Jesus loves us enough to challenge the things that keep us from having the deepest possible relationship with God. The question is, will we accept his invitation to follow even when it's uncomfortable for us, even when it's costly to us? That was the dilemma of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. They had the evidence of Jesus' authority, and they had the same invitation as everybody else, but the challenge to set aside their faulty views on God, their, their broken God boxes, was just too great. I want to close this morning by looking at the first few verses of chapter 3 and noting the inevitable outcome of failing to obey and choosing our own way. Verse one begins like this, chapter three. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, notice that when it becomes apparent that Jesus is not gonna fit inside of our God boxes, people will start to look for reasons to challenge his actions, attack his character, blame him for evil or some combination of all three. Ah, a good God would never send people to hell. And if he did, I couldn't worship that God. That would neither be loving nor good. Is that not a God box? Or, or no one can judge me or my behavior. You've got no right to point out sin in my life. Jesus says, don't judge. Is this not a God box also? Even saying there is no God puts God in a box of our creation that aligns with with our way of seeing and understanding the world. And watch what happens when Jesus refuses to fit in the boxes that we try to force him into. Verse three, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand. Stand up in front of everyone. 
Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent because they're cowards. Verse five, he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, their enemies, how they might kill Jesus. Now, think back to the miracle that we saw earlier. I told you to put something in the back of your brain. Remember the, the result, the people's attitude when they saw the healing earlier? They praised God, right? What response do we see here? When Jesus refuses to fit in our God box, people become arrogant and stubborn. They become blind to the good things that are happening right in front of their faces. And they descend to depths that they never thought possible. What began as simply listening to a street preaching miracle worker ended up in plotting to kill the son of God. The good news the gospel. It is good news. And we have a choice to hear and obey or suffer our own way. The good news is also divisive. It challenges us to stretch outside the the boundaries that we're comfortable with. And when we try to force Jesus into our way of thinking rather than adopting his. It ends up in our rejection of Jesus altogether. If Jesus can't define sin for us and he must fit in our box, we're no longer following him, we're following ourselves. If Jesus isn't allowed to shape our view on life and sexuality and money and politics and priorities and purpose, He's no longer God. Whatever gets the final say in shaping our views has become God. There's a word for that in the scriptures. It's called idolatry. The Pharisees stopped worshiping God and instead began worshiping themselves and their traditions. So I've got to ask you, where... Is God stretching you? Are there places that his words make you uncomfortable? And maybe you're even tempted to ignore them or rationalize them away so that you can put Jesus inside your little God box. That's you. That's where you're living right now. If that's where you're operating, just want you to hear that is an incredibly dangerous place to be. The invitation to follow Jesus is given to all. But he will challenge us to set aside our tiny little boxes that we've made for him. This is a hard message to preach because I like to be comfortable. Remember, I like predictability. I like stability. And even those things can become idols. So where is Jesus stretching you? And how will you choose to respond? 
If you've never accepted Jesus' invitation to allow him to do what only he can do, and that is run your life. Be the, what the scriptures call the Lord of your life. That invitation is, is yours today. I mean, let's be honest. Anybody who's been around the sun a few times knows that, you know, we get to call the shots in our lives, but, you know, we look in the rearview mirror and more often than not, all we see is wreckage. God didn't create us to be gods. He didn't create us to be the rulers of our own lives. He created us to be in relationship with him. He's God, we're not. He knows the way we do not. If you've never submitted yourself to Jesus, repented of your sins, been immersed into Christ, and chosen to walk in the newness of life that's offered only through him, that invitation is yours today. Don't retreat back to stuffing him in a God box. Accept him and allow him to lead you. If you are operating in this world like I am, then we know, we can be honest with each other. Like this place, it stretches us, right? It's hard living on this planet at this time and it's always been hard. You weren't created to live life on your own. And if you're finding yourself at the breaking point, perhaps our experience as a church family, perhaps our insights as a church family might be some encouragement to you. Again, you're not meant to do life on your own. And if you just like to belong, if you'd like to be able to stand shoulder to shoulder with other people who are broken, but we're failing toward Jesus, we'd love, to, we'd love for you to be part of our family. Wherever you are, whatever you've got going on, I don't want you to hear this morning, Jesus doesn't belong in a box. He came, lived the perfect life, died the, the appropriate death so that we might have real life. And that doesn't equate to a life where we get to call all the shots and we try to force him back into a box after he's forgiven us of our sins. That does not work. If you've got a decision to make this morning, whether that's accept Jesus for the first time 